You're listening to the Crazy Grace Podcast, where today's modern spiritual experience comes alive in authentic conversation. Here with Nate Allen, known this dude for a while. I met him a long time ago in San Francisco on a whim. <laughs> um, so we've been friends since, and I've always followed his music, and, and it's, it's, it's just great stuff, great, fun music, uh, both when it was just him, and then and then he mentioned to destroy Nate Allen, and then him and his uh, wife, Tessa, got married, and and they were doing a crazy duo uh, folk punk kind of stuff. It was It's amazing. So much fun, especially live. So now you're back to Nate Allen? Yeah, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I've always been like you're making... Yeah, it kind of seems like you're making like another transition, like going from the story Nate Allen for two years and now, and then you know it's not new like as of this album, but um, yeah, I think a few albums ago you started like actually having a band with you and and yeah, I mean was... every album we've evolved quite a bit. Um, I think Tessa tends to be like that's why people don't know what to do with us because every album is very different. Uh, yeah, but. I mean, I think that the reality is there's two sides, at least two defined sides to my creativity. And so in the last few years, we've made a really conscious effort to divide those. So, like, Destroying It Allen is now, like, our wild and wacky duo when we're together. And Nate Allen is me alone with the guitar. And sometimes if I have a band, they're called the Packaway Dots. Uh but like it's, when it's just me, it's just it's more serious in tone. It's still goofy and fun, and I've been told it's fun to see live. But it's not the same as destroying Allen as far as it's not a bit of chaos with our rock and roll, guaranteed. Yeah. So, so I really like the the concept on this album of kind of taking out the trash. Yeah. So talk about that a bit. What, what was kind of in your mind with that concept? Well, you know, I, I was just, I'm not good at naming albums. Like, they take forever for me to name. And so I wrote the album, like, probably several months before I had the name. And and it just it decided to, to just pull, like, something from my past and use it as an album title, which I had a zine called Take Out the Trash for quite a few years, and I still kind of do. Um and if you don't know what a zine is, it's a like bunch of paper folded in half with little stories in it. <laughs> we know what it is, but there might be like some fourteen year olds listening. Yeah, I mean if like, you if you're fourteen you've never heard of a zine, you should go to like the internet and look. Uh yeah, type in the totally. Z I N E. Like we've got there was a Kansas City Zine Con this week and it was like seven hundred people in this room, like all unifying around this love of eight and a half by 11 paper folded in half with black and white copies. So that was pretty cool. But, uh, so back to the actual title of the record, take out the trash. Uh, it's turned out to be really fitting because the album is very confessional in nature. I think is a good way to put it. it it's like, and in some ways it's interesting to see how uncomfortable that makes people feel because mm-hmm. I'm just kind of, saying a lot of things that you know maybe I needed to say but it were just like kind of new realizations when I was writing the album I was 
kind of my own humanity and my own broken thought patterns and uh, like just all sorts of stuff. And so it's really like it starts with the uh, the words hating myself for what I have done. And like even from that note, you'll see people like kind of stiffen up a bit because they didn't quite expect that out of my mouth. Uh, and then it just kind of goes from there into kind of confessing and working through kind of some of my my small town upbringing around ideas of race and privilege and and uh, abuse and things like that that kind of I didn't realize I'd kind of been a part of without knowing it. So it's like had conversation, then I'd go write a song, and then that song would would kind of turn out to be an apology or for me processing some piece of trash, I guess, inside of me that needs to be taken out. So that's yeah. kind of just of the record, um, lyrically at least. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, our world recently has just been experiencing like crazy racial tension. Yeah, and and just insane um both like demonstrations and i think it's brought to the surface it's kind of exposed um kind of kind of how quickly people come to the defense of people who are like obviously doing something unjust yeah um but so in this case we're talking about like mainly, not always, but mainly white police officers versus, you know, just black citizens. Um, so how is, have, have you learned or figured out a way how to, like, be white and still be pissed, <laughs> you know, about what's happening that's unjust and communicate that in a way that I feel like the two errors are, like, you you kind of overplay your hand. and Yeah. And it's kind of patronizing and um so white people and black people don't appreciate it because they're like what are you doing <laughs> and then yeah. you underplay it and people think that you're just not you don't no. care and you know what i mean i mean i run into both sides of that because like the record is is racially charged in at least three songs or two songs uh they came directly out of conversations i had with with people in a community group that was interracial as a, as a group, and we were working through some of the difficult work of trying to figure out how to, like, get along and forgive each other when there's an offense. So um, that was literally what was, like, the engine behind the record. And so I think even, like, being a, a white guy in, in my 30s that is not exactly an activist, uh, I'm not, like, out there in the trenches fighting for most things. Uh, mm-hmm. it's been kind of an awkward learning curve, if you would say. Because sometimes, you know, it's easy to overstate something or somebody's like, oh, that's not your story. I'm like, that's ah, not really my story, but I was moved by someone else's story. And so yeah. it's been interesting to see, like, how nuanced that is. And then the other side is, like, the underplaying, which I tend to do almost all the time, except in destroying it Alan when we're being goofy. Uh, and that I just kind of will take the, the kind of silent part, like place in an argument, like unless I'm really feeling confident in what to say. And so 
realizing like where that is and if you're listening to this there's an if you google huffington post and nate allen you'll find an article where i talk about this in depth and it's uh it lays things out probably better than i'll say here but uh yeah, so seeing the two sides of that, like I had somebody who wrote me on Facebook and they're like, how how are you writing an album that has these tones and then you're not, you know, posting about Black Lives Matter every day? Uh, yeah. I do believe matter, but at the same time, I'm not a person who tends to fill up all my social media with, with very much other than here's a song link. And so I was like, oh, I kind of already did what I could do, which is put out an album of songs. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a big so deal. Like, here's my here's my offering, and here's an interview where I talk about stuff. And um, and some people, I mean, I guess in my in my favor, have said those those two offerings, the interview and, and the discussion, have been some of the more helpful think pieces that they've come across. But uh, it's been really interesting to see the two extremes. And actually, the last song on the record is called "Goodbye Letter." And it references a concept called an echo chamber. Do you know what that is? No. It's uh, I learned about it a couple of years ago, and it's basically what happens when people get polarized. So, for instance, if you only hang out with with young anarchists all the time, you will start to only think like a young anarchist. Or if you only watch Fox News all the time, you'll start to only think like Fox News. And so the longer mm-hmm. you hang out with a specific group of people, the more you just start to think alike and your views get louder and louder. And so what happens is that, you know, mutual coming together to kind of learn from each other, which is really helpful, gets completely broken down and people become really defensive. And I think a lot of that's what's happening, at least in my impressions online, where somebody's like, I'm mad at you for this, whatever you did, and now I hate you. And any of that middle ground space is pretty much non-existent because people aren't occupying that. Or if they right. are, it doesn't get listened to. So, so the echo yeah, chamber concept is really helpful for me. Yeah, one of the things that is my kind of um, go-to is uh, no effects of song, don't call me white. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know I don't know why, but every time there's kind of a tense kind of racial moment that I get sucked up into, um I tend to just be like, Hey, have you listened to this song? It's kinda of like <laughs> proof that I'm not a jerk. It's so funny. <laughs> I, I mean I I actually just did a podcast a few minutes ago with it with a friend in Texas and he referenced no effects too. Uh oh, really? That's really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of tripping out by that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. So here's what happened to me. Um, I'm through just just traveling and speaking and stuff in different churches and stuff. Uh, one church that, like, kind of changed my life was a predominantly black church. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I remember the first time they invited me to come speak there. Uh, I took my friend Keith with me, and so it's just the two of us. And and at the time, the church was meeting in East Orange, New Jersey. So East Orange is, like, very few white people. Um, it's it's just predominantly black and Latino. Um, yeah. 
And so we're in East Orange. We're the only white people that we can see for, like, blocks. Yeah. And there's people on the street and everything. And so, you know, you – I've kind of dealt with this earlier in my life because I grew up in New York City for uh, during my child, my early childhood. So, I mean, I had friends of every culture growing up. So to yeah. diversity and just having friends who were different from me and came from different cultures was not a big deal at all. Never even thought about it. Um, but my friend that was with me, um, I don't even know that if he thought about it, but he just seemed nervous. So, yeah, I was, and then I just got me thinking, like, what is it in white people that when they're around a lot of black people, they just get nervous. Like, for some reason, they're just nervous. And it's not, they're not going around, like, hating anybody. They don't, but there is, like, this subtle subconscious prejudice. Yeah. Um, but I think, there. I mean, I, I'd say we fear, we fear we don't know, like, as humans. And so, I mean, I think that, like, comes into, like, a big deal. Like, I mean, I, I'm on this record processing kind of like there's a song social equality that kind of talks through my whole process of like kind of trying to unlearn my small town upbringing which is like 99 percent white mm-hmm. uh, in, in oregon if you hang out in anything other than a big city you're going to run into just just white people and uh, right and so like th- that fear was very palatable and uh it's just really interesting because like yeah, I think people just fear what they don't know. And I know you can get – we actually had an incident this last year. Since we moved to Kansas City, Tessa and I have both been shot in drive-bys. Wow. Yeah. We don't talk about it because it's a weird thing to talk about that often. But, uh, yeah, we were walking one night, and somebody drove by and shot her with a BB gun in the shoulder and, like, pierced her shirt, and she thought she was shot worse than that. And uh, it was some, like, some black teenagers in that one. And then a few months, and I totally made us scared of every single car we saw for months. And then we went walking, and then somebody that I don't have any clue who it was shot me with some sort of pellet or paintball or something uh, that also put a hole in my shirt and hit me in the chest, like, a few months after that, right by our house. So then we're walking at night, and we're, like, scared of every single car that we see. And uh, it was just, like, totally twist their mind in these really weird directions. They're like, man, I'm scared of everybody now. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it, but it, it totally is that thing. Like, man, I'm, I'm like walking at night and a car might be behind me and I might tense up, even though I know that the odds of them shooting something out a window at me are not good. Uh, or I mean, they're right. very, very low. It just happens. And I'm like, oh gosh, maybe that person's going to shoot me. Yeah, that happened to me, uh, I want to say it was like 2001 or 2000. Um, yeah. In Reno, I was I was walking to the mall. Uh, they used to be open by my parents' house. And I, it was probably like about a mile walk. And I'm walking, and I this car drove by, and I didn't think anything of it. But as it drove by, I heard like a thud on this glass yeah. in, the, in the, the, the glass window of this building I was walking by. And somebody was trying to shoot at me with a paintball gun. And wow. I was like, wow, this is crazy. What is going yeah. on? 
But yeah, I mean, I've never been treated so well um, as when I started kind of connecting with this this church in East Orange. Um, like, awesome. here's here's what happens: white church versus black church. Um, yeah. <laughs> white church is boring. Um, <laughs> I found compared. I think once you once you go to black church, you just can't look at white church the same ever again. <laughs> you know, come on, man. Yeah. Come on. We rock out hard. It's like when you've grown up on Ritz crackers and someone hands you an Oreo. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> my world just changed. I can't eat that. It's just a cracker. So, yeah. <laughs> so I remember um, they would, like, literally find out who you are as a person. And yeah. then they would give you, like, that title, like, okay, so we're calling you this now because that's that's your identity. That's who you are. And so it was always, yeah. like, a reminder, like, fix stuff so oh, yeah. you know. And uh, and I was like, wow, my church, like, would never do that. They would be like, you're thinking too much about yourself. You need to hum- get humbled <laughs> yeah. or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Matt, uh, we, uh, yeah, keep going. Oh, so, yeah, they, I mean, Aaron didn't even, my wife Aaron didn't even go with us. And um, they, when I showed up with my friend Keith, just two guys, this church, they handed me a gift basket full of all these, like, <laughs> lotions and spasa. Um, they they gave us, like, an Olive Garden gift card so we could go out to dinner. Like, it was amazing. Every time we saw them, they were just, like, giving us gifts. And we are like, well, geez. We uh, have not the same thing totally, but uh, there's been a couple times that we were, like, flipping through the channels, and, and there's, like, the, the like praise and worship station on or whatever and it's just super boring and then we flip the next channel and it's like the black like gospel channel and they're just like oh, yeah. showing it and we'll go back and forth and be like yeah we want to be with the black people this white people stuff is so yeah. boring yeah. like <laughs> and we'll totally like like there was one time it was like some big crusade or something but nobody's standing within 40 feet of feet of the band and I don't think even like the bass player was tapping his toes or something it was so boring and then we flip it over and like the whole crowd is just going crazy and dancing and like there's so much more life in, in the like the contrast was just like so startling yeah it, it was it was intense so I mean I don't know I found myself like very easily being in that community and, and kind of hanging out and being able to like speak to them and as like yeah. a white dude from the West Coast. But um it's interesting because um Facebook has kinda ruined all our lives. Because No <laughs> I think it is. Well, not more than anything else. I'll say that. No, it's it's um, done more than something for sure. I think that that in no other time, because we've had websites before that were cool, that we, you know, socially interacted with people through a website. Yeah. But this is the first website that's taken that to a level that's, like, so high. Um, yeah. It's like the professional sports of social media. <laughs> it's <laughs> like there's no joking around. Um, and and it's brought into a level now where, like, you can't even communicate something simply 
without it being taken the wrong way or offending yeah. one person or you know what I mean? I remember like in the days of MySpace, which no one listening is gonna know what that is. But in the days of MySpace, like I remember like um people understood, I feel like, that, you know, you're writing and you may not be this rude really. You're just yeah. writing. Like I never really got into huge arguments with people on MySpace. And it was mostly like music anyway, you know, we were just kind of interacting yeah. around music. But this is like just people, it, Facebook is like the wild card. Yeah. It's like everyone is just going for it all the time. I mean, I work in social media and I still like don't say stuff on the internet. Like, that's why I was saying like, if you're actually going to follow me on Facebook, it's going to be like, here's some random music stuff and like nothing else most of the time. Uh, because, like, every once in a while, I'll, like, oh, I'm going to tell a joke, or I'm going to make a funny comment on somebody's whatever. And yeah. almost always, like, somebody gets offended or goes the wrong way, or, and, like, like we played a right. show a long time ago, and there's all these, like, our typical audience is, like, punk rockers or something like that, and and some for some reason, they all had to go. And so I was like, hey, no to all the punks in Orlando. When you leave, the normal people get to have fun. Because it turned into this like forty-year-old ladies drinking in a bar show instead of all the punk rockers that had left, and I was yeah. totally telling a joke like in my mind, and then all the normal people that on my Facebook feed, and by normal I mean anybody that doesn't wear like old punk rock clothes, if you're listening, uh, started like just totally bashing on all these punks. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 that wasn't. I wasn't intending to like take my core audience and, like, run them under the bus. Like, that was me just joking because the show turned into an interestingly weird show. Like, yeah, you know, so, I, I just don't tell jokes. <laughs> Even though yeah, people that's sometimes a, think I'm funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a danger, I think, like, Facebook has made um, not interacting so much, like, more interactive that yeah. um, people don't understand that, like, these are words and you can't hear yeah. tone and, and stuff well, that's like that. The that's thing. why like, like Yeah, tone, man. Yeah, I that's why I don't comment on a lot on racial subjects online. Yeah. Because my picture is of a white guy and yeah. I have to either speak to one audience and be pro them or not. Yeah. And, like, either way, it might get misconstrued. I remember, uh, so this was right when, it was right after Ferguson, and this is right when um, there was a guy who got killed because he wasn't strapped in or he wasn't, he didn't have a a seatbelt on in the back of his paddy wagon. Yeah, Um, yeah, that one. Yeah, if you remember that. And he died as a result of injuries from not being safely secured um yeah so i remember um i was living in new jersey at the time we were living in south jersey outside philadelphia and it's really rural and farmy and you know the big thing for some white guys what they like to do uh, with these kind of guys that i knew because of uh my wife's brothers were really into like mudding like taking big lifted trucks out in these swamps and dogs and just going through mud holes. 
which is fun. Um, but it, let's get straight. It, it is like a white thing to do. Like, yeah, I'm totally. you'll, yeah, you'll <laughs> never see any, any other, it's not diverse. It's just white people, you know, getting muddy and dirty and nasty. So we're out there. We're in the middle of the woods. We're actually on this dude's property who, um, he inherited a pig farm from his family and he turned it into mud holes because he likes yeah. mudding, I guess. <laughs> so we're over there. There's about 45 just, you know, white New Jersey people. Um, <laughs> and New Jersey is the most densely populated state. It's very diverse. Countries didn't even know existed. You'll, like, meet somebody from there. Like, it's very diverse. And so these guys are sitting around. And they're just talking. You know, they're having a few drinks, talking, driving trucks, in and out of these mud holes. And what they're talking about was just, like, so racist. It yeah. crazy. Like, I have not come across, like, there's, like, racism that's unfair and unjust. Then there's racism yeah, yeah. that is just so shocking you don't even know what to do with it. Yeah. Um and that's what they were talking about. Like, they were talking about that situation in the news about that guy who died in the paddy wagon. And yeah. there was just, like, so much, like, who cares, he's black kind of talk. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God. And I was like, so I kind of butted in a little bit. And because I was not completely confident that they were being serious. Yeah. I thought, like, okay, they're probably making a dark joke. You know, like, it's a little too soon and too serious of a thing to be making a joke about it. But maybe that's yeah. what it is. They're just crazy, and they're just joking about this. But they're serious. Uh, the more yeah. I talked to them, they were dead serious, and um, they were just angry. They didn't like black people. They didn't like Mexicans. They didn't like Puerto Ricans. They didn't like all these different people. And, Did they uh, know you? They told Your me, parents are not from here? Yeah, I know. I thought, well, I'm the whitest immigrant in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not be a whiter immigrant than me. Um, <laughs> I'm probably the only one that Donald Trump would, let's say, I think. You're not fired? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not fired. The only one. So, <laughs> that's funny. So, um, what was going on? Oh, yeah, they were telling me a story about how this black guy really liked mudding. And he had a truck. He had this big, like, Chevy truck lifted. Yeah. Had monster truck tires on it. He loved going in the mud. And he wanted to join their, um, I don't want to say crew. I'm so used to, you can tell I used to be straight edge kids saying crew for everything. <laughs> but you can say straight edge. I'm down with the core, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, like, everything... Yeah, yeah. He wanted to be down, like, with their group and join, like, their 4 by 4 club and all go to the meetings and all this stuff. And um, so he came to the pig farm once, and I think he was there for five minutes. He had a couple of friends with him who happened to be, like, I think they were Puerto Rican. And I remember, like, the guy said, yeah, so I walked up to him and said, listen, man, uh, we like you. We think you're cool. We like your truck. But um, you can leave now in your truck, or you can stay here on a noose on that tree. Oh, my gosh. That's so horrible. Yeah. 
yeah, horrible. And yeah. I just looked at them, and I couldn't – I didn't even know what to say. Like, I didn't yeah. even know where to begin <laughs> with this man. So, like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? And the the biggest thing that bothered me was how do you live in New Jersey and you're just not unhappy all the time if you're that racist? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Like you're not living in Oregon. <laughs> like yeah. you're what do you mean? so many other white people, you know? Yeah. Like it just doesn't make it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I think for me, um growing up in New York, I'm sure and I've and I've those things have come up for me where I've noticed little prejudices or thoughts I've had yeah. or feelings that I'm just like, Oh, that's kinda racist. I should go ahead and stop that. Um Yeah, yeah. But I live in a diverse enough place that, you know, that gets taken care of. It comes up, and I deal with it, and, you know, I put it to rest. But I don't understand, so I don't understand living in a diverse place and just committing to staying racist. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It, it, it seems like a lot, of, a lot of work, man. Like, it's to me, it feels harder to stay, to stay in that hateful space than to just come out of it like i don't even feel like i have like i don't have much space to type anything online that's like not super positive i I always like look at somebody that's typing on facebook and ranting and just being like how do you have enough time in your life like i don't have enough time in my life to to formulate thoughts coherent enough to type with like big angry capital letters or something like i don't get it so another yeah. cool story, I just looked this up online. Have you heard the, I think his name, Daryl Davis, have you heard that name? He is a, that a really black, rings a bell. He's a black musician that uh, befriended, like, the president of the KKK. And okay. if you look up the name Daryl Davis online, you'll see really cool stories of this guy who decided to just say, I'm going to be friends with you anyway, and, like, Basically, these people that that would on paper be the most hateful, like started their hearts started changing as they befriended this guy. Um, and it's a really cool story. So Google the name Daryl Davis. Yeah, I think I've heard about that. There's like pictures of him with. Um, yeah, no. The picture I'm looking at right now is like he's standing there with his arms crossed next to, like, a guy in a full KKK thing with his arms crossed and they're, like, posing for the picture. Um, wow. It's super... It's super Friendship intense. is magic, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the thing, like, people forget the human capacity to change and mm-hmm. to adapt, like, when shown love or when given space to. I think that's like the one of the more in, inspiring things. Like I see people that like have you know. I think like in, in the punk rock world, it's pretty normal for somebody to like be normal and then have like take on a new set of ideals. Mm-hmm. But I think we can forget that that uh, pretty much all of us are capable of adapting in, in crazy ways, uh, both good and bad. But I really like. I'm really like compelled to learn more about how people can like how bad patterns are reversed. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's, you know, how many times do you hear 
like kind of these like pop I guess I call it like pop wisdom, but it's yeah. not wisdom at all. But it's just like things <laughs> that people think are like wise statements like, you know, you can't change somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's the most hilarious one because I think almost everyone believes that, that you can't like change someone and you shouldn't. Yeah. It's completely unhealthy. You should just accept somebody for how they are and then forever be with that version of them. Uh, yeah. But it's just so... It's so bizarre. Like, I mean, <laughs> on a weird, like, psychological level, I, I do a lot of reading now about that sort of stuff. And there's, like, I was reading somewhere about how the same, like, mental, like, structures that, as a young kid, allow you to adapt in almost any situation for survival. Like, you block out things that are traumatic. You, you know, adapt in situations that are super crazy. When you get to your, like, late 20s, early 30s, those switch on you, and all of a sudden you become really self-aware that you're pretty much a mess, uh, often, and it's like the same exact, like, part of your brain that was, like, helping you survive and become unaware, now, like, makes you kind of too aware, and you have to start, like, going to therapy or something, because uh, you realize that there's all those broken things in your life. Yeah. Because your body is, like, Adapting so quick, keep changing. Yeah. So how? Here, let's get back to your music because yeah, <laughs> we are in all sorts of awesome topics. But how <laughs> would you say? Um, how would you say that your music has changed since uh, being married? And like, do you like that? Do you do you that think that like? Well, did you – you saw me when I was single, right? Yeah. Like, okay, so we'll go from that point. So if you're listening, I was – I would play when I was single what I would call indie folk punk, kind of like quiet, gentle folk music with some punk rock leaning. Uh, I didn't really yell much. I just kind of sang catchy melodies. And uh, Someone once described it as just enough to set me apart from other singer-songwriters, but it wasn't a whole lot different. Uh, and then Tessa came along, and everything shifted. Like, we went through, like, a couple years, I mean, several years of growth as a band to, like, figure out what the heck we do. Because I think, like, in some ways, we talked about this, but I'm not, like, crashing on Tessa, but, like, the trajectory of our band shifted dramatically. And there's, like, a lot more... And commercial appeal maybe to a singer-songwriter that writes slightly vague universal lyrics, which is kind of what I like to do. Uh, I like to try to write songs that connect with as many people as, like, ideologically as possible. It's kind of one of my, my big deals. And so Tessa writes very different, and our whole band dynamic changed. So I think in some ways, like, the momentum I had as a solo artist went away, and most of the fans that I built as a solo artist went away and like some some stuck around but i mean pretty much whatever had been started kind of had to Bader had to adapt with us but at the time we're going to just hang around because uh, we got to be like not just a more high energy band but also like a scarier band like people ran out the door when we play and you know stuff like that like so that shifted a lot of our dynamics and now i think we 
we're better at keeping people around, but I mean, we're kind of an invasive theater act together, so that's not the same kind of marketability. Like, we went run into sound guys all the time that are like freaked out by us because we're like playing on the floor and they're used to dance on stages and you know, you get in a big rock club and you get in a, a disagreement with the club owner because he doesn't want you to play unconventionally. <laughs> and I think uh, it's been an interesting process as far as our musical adaptability. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah. So obviously you guys changed each other and your music changed and shifted and all sorts of things changed. But it was good, I think. Like, yeah, that's I, I, I'm really, like, I wouldn't do it differently with what I know now. Like, I mean, I, well, maybe I would do it differently, but for hindsight, you always have the adjustments. But I'm glad what we chose to do, which was tour as a couple. And we run into so many bands that, you know, maybe we are fans of or, or whatnot that are like, man, you guys are living the dream. I'd love to bring my wife or husband with me we're like you can it's not like you can't like take that person with you but um i mean the reality is that there's complicated dynamics and some people don't want to be in front of an audience every night uh tess and i are both extroverts so that that helps us a lot uh yeah if we weren't we'd you know probably have not lasted as long as we have without blowing through our energy levels Right. Um, okay. So yeah, I mean, she she changed me in so many ways. Like for the better. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a healthier person with her, and um, and so our band I think is is healthier than it would have been. It's just very different. Totally. Yeah, it's been it's been cool to watch like the evolution. I guess. Um, yeah. It's been cool just like see the see the progress and all the changes and and just how you guys have adapted and kind of pursued creativity together. Um, yeah. And, you know, writing music is not like, it's not like for the faint of heart. I think like everyone's no. like, oh yeah, I'll just write some music. Oh man. But it's difficult, you know, and especially by yourself. By yourself, it's difficult. Just sitting well, around I mean, and being. It's so hard. Like, we always say that it's harder to be in a band together than to be married. And it's, yeah. and it's even another level to co-write music is, like, is like super difficult. We, uh, I, I mean, in 2011, we co-wrote a record on the road. We toured for six months, and we wrote in the van every day when we weren't, like, on the, sh- on the way to the show. And... Well, I'm proud of the record we wrote. I would not recommend anyone ever do that. So if you're listening and you get the, the bright idea to write a record on the road with your your partner in the car, like, just stop right now. Uh, <laughs> it's totally uh, exhausting. And, I mean, probably one of the reasons that we end up having to take a break because I just about, like, drove our crazy train into the ground. Um, so... Yeah, that that stuff's all so difficult. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, we don't have any kids, so I assume that is, like, a whole other level of difficult that I can't comprehend. But in our experience, being in a band is harder than, you know, figuring out how to cook dinner together. Yeah. 
So, so what? So what are the plans for uh, the new album? So I'll be touring. Like touring in, yeah, I'm touring in October by myself with my friend Eric. Uh, he's in self-proclaimed narcissist. I've known him for a long, long time. And so, yeah, we're doing a Midwest tour, and then I think we're doing a November, December, January thing on the West Coast. It's being worked out, mm-hmm. but it looks like we'll do a two-month tour at least uh, around, the like, before and after the holidays. Because uh, we, we haven't really been to Oregon, and we haven't played a concert there since we moved here to Kansas City two years ago. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what we're doing. Most of it will be at least including my new solo material or my, my alone set. And some of it will be the Destroy Need Allen, like, band. So, But all of it will just probably just be the two of us in the band. Awesome. And, uh, so we get a chance to really, I mean, we really missed touring. We were doing it a lot. And, I mean, if you're if you're not familiar with our band, we've played... 915 times or something like that since 2005, six. So, it's done a lot of shows, and so when we take a break, every once in a while we start to miss it. And uh, I, I really didn't want to tour for a while, because one of my core issues I'm working through is how to not be a workaholic. And like, so when I go on in the tour mode, it's easy to feed that that monster. But uh. I saw some bands a few weeks ago, and I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to go on tour again. I came home from the show all excited. And, uh, but I think we're, we're finally back there to, to doing it. And I guess the awesome. other plans for the new record is we're just trying to get it out to the right audience, which, as far as I can tell, in my mind, is 30-year-old white males with beards to identify <laughs> with the record. Our, our target demographic is very defined. In that when I play the album for other people, they, they might love it a lot, but they don't necessarily gravitate to it. But when I play it to people that look like me, uh, they totally get it and just eat it up. So I guess in that way, this record is, is really me singing to the people that are probably most similar to me. And, and that's kind of the goal is to get, get the album in front of as many people that, that I would share some sort of cultural connection with. Um, so it's probably unfortunate that I don't really like beer because I know a lot of people that are white with beards in their 30s that also wear glasses like beer, but I just don't. That would help. <laughs> so. Yeah, beards. Beards are like I don't know what to what to like really um, parallel it to kind of like with the cool kids when we were kids but it's like it's so strange how popular like beards and mustaches are right now yeah man i've got one of my friends he might have actually shaved off his beard but he's a beard celebrity um wow and so he like is on like he's actually like he's on the netflix like beard whisker wars thing like oh, okay. on there. <laughs> and it's like Mike O'Connor. Hey, Mike, here's a shout out. But um, yeah, he totally made his his kind of like flash as for this beard. And when I lived with him, he didn't have a beard. It's totally crazy. Uh, so 
I didn't really. I just I just don't like to shave. I'm kind of lazy, so that way. Yeah, yeah. That's that's completely my issue. Like uh, that happened to me a few weeks ago. Like I just didn't feel like shaving anymore, so I didn't. And then uh, I one day one day I felt like shaving, so I did. And I remember like a coworker saying, "Oh, baby face," and I was like, <laughs> I literally like haven't made haven't put any thought into either having a beard or not you know well, like zero thought i like didn't i mean my beard is now it's fairly long probably like eight inches or something but uh maybe maybe six but it's long and a few months ago people were like all of a sudden started commenting hey nice beard whoa and i was like oh man i must have like crossed the line from like casual beard owner to beard with a capital b and uh, it was it was kind of a weird week. Awesome. So your album is going to be out September 18th through yeah. uh, Burnside, Burnside Distributions. Burnside Distribution, High Endurance Records are the two engines cool. there. Cool. And um, they can go to your website to pre-order. Yeah, right. you can pre-order it on imnateallen.com. Cool. I'm excited about the vinyl, man. I think I'm going to get some vinyl. Ooh, I am. You know, I couldn't sequence this album until I thought of it in terms of vinyl. Like, I just, I spent like months wrapping my head around the track listing, and then all of a sudden I was like, I should think of it in terms of site A and B. And it came together like, you know, in like five minutes. Uh, so I'm, I kind of look at this album as, as really designed to be on vinyl. Uh, yeah. I'm what is your... Not to spark a crazy debate, but what is your preferred color? The preferred color? Oh, I don't know how to fight about this, but um, for, they just say for vinyl or just in general? Yeah, just vinyl. Do you go with, like, black, um, clear, or multicolor? Well, we got some really cool multicolor that I like, but the thing that makes me happy about this record is I actually did get, like, a third of them on clear vinyl, and I think it looks really cool. Especially, I mean, when you take the concept of take out the trash to its, like, extent, you kind of want that to be clean, and so it's, it's kind of a cool, like, oh, I cleaned this off, and now it's clean. So, yeah. And that's, that's kind of my, that's my current favorite one. But I'm not, I'm not a von, vinyl worshiper or collector, so I don't really know, like, I only... The only vinyl colors I know are the ones I look at on the websites and say, oh, that's kind of a cool vinyl color. Maybe I should get that one made. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. clear is the, the kind of extra thing we did with this one. So, 100 cool. black, 100 clear, and 100 other random colors. Yeah, there's always, like, some debate as to which is the best sounding vinyl. Uh, best quality. Yeah. Some people are like they, black. Some people are like clear. You know. Well, they say audio file black, but man, my ears aren't good enough to tell most of the time. So. Yeah. I, I'm, I just buy whatever, you know. Like, I mean, well, I just get made whatever makes sense for the project. But, yeah. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a music buyer. I used to be. So, I, I, I figure it's somebody who's telling you to go to my website and buy my album, but I'm not somebody who actually buys albums much anymore. 
uh, and it's not so much that I don't think you should buy albums, it's that I was an extreme music addict, and so I had to, like, lay down some pretty strong boundaries for myself, and eventually kind of fell out of the habit of, like, buying music, and, uh, even listening, I'm trying to get back in the habit of listening to music, uh, but that's been, that's another crazy long story. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and talking with us. Yeah, and, thank you. Um, yeah, no problem. I'm really excited for, for the album to come out and and hopefully seeing you on tour. Yeah, we definitely, again, so. in my Excel spreadsheet that I was putting together last night, there, the word Reno is typed. And, yeah. And, uh, we were like, okay, Robert and Aaron, Reno. Like, that's all I know. Reno. But, I mean, yeah. I do like the fact that you have bright light. So, that's kind of... We really love oh, Penny Flock. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Everyone, go get this album when it comes out. Pre-order it. Get black vinyl only or clear or multicolor. Doesn't matter. Audio file black, man. Where's that? <laughs> Awesome. Well, we're going to say goodbye from the Crazy Grace podcast from the Dallas. See you guys later.